Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, March 19, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this talk, John Strasbaugh, in conversation with Richard Brookheiser, discusses the history of New York City during World War II. Thank you all for coming. It's, it's a great pleasure uh, for me to be here again, talking with John Strasbaugh again. Uh, we did this with City of Sedition. Uh, this is also a terrific book. If you like New York City or if you just like interesting stuff, you will love this book. And uh, John is our prose Whitman. So uh, without, well, I, I, I shared that compliment with him in an email, and I thought, why keep it to myself? So um, my first question to you, uh, it, it would be obvious that there should be a book on London in World War II or Paris or Leningrad. Mm -hmm. Why New York in World War II? Uh, that's a good question. You could have, uh, and possibly people did ask it about my previous book, which was New York and the Civil War, because um, the closest the Civil War came to New York was, I guess, Gettysburg. Um, and the answer is basically the same for both. It, it's because New York and New Yorkers, like the city's emissaries out in the world, um, had such big impacts on the, on the way the war was conducted, not only by the United States, but by the other allies. So um, in talking about New York City, you're talking about the much broader context. And it, it, some of it's in some very obvious ways, like New York being the biggest city in the world, which it was then, put more men and women in, in uniform for the war than any other city in the country. It was something like 850,000 New Yorkers went into uniform out of roughly 16 million people who served. Um, that included uh, the, up at Columbia, the Navy had an accelerated training program for young naval officers. It was called the V7 program that cranked out 10 times more of these guys who came to be known as 90-day wonders, that's where the 90-day wonder thing comes from, um, than Annapolis did. Um, and uh, the Navy's WAVES program um, was developed by uh, a New Yorker, Virginia Gildersleeve, who was the um, dean of Bard at the time. It was conducted at... Um, Hunter College's Bronx campus, which is now Lehman College, and they trained thousands of women who went into the Navy um, as waves. Um, so that's some obvious stuff. Um, there's another obvious uh, point to be made that um, uh, New York City, the New York Harbor, was the Army's main point of embarkation for the European front. So something like 6 million troops and I think it's 63 million tons of war material went through that Brooklyn Army terminal um, on the East River on its way over to Europe. So that's a big impact. Um, there's the, New York was the, the media nerve center of the country at the time. So the big newspapers, the big magazines, uh, Life magazine, and the radio networks were all here. So they played a big role 
in um, how people perceived, how Americans perceived the war and, and their opinions about the war. Meanwhile, Madison Avenue, very cleverly, um, um, got involved with the federal government and designed um, much of the propaganda, the domestic propaganda that people saw that also was shaping their opinions and attitudes toward the war. Um, also, uh, it, it, it's not he for... Knows this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'll stop it. Um, uh, it, it. It is not for nothing that the two atom bombs who end, that ended the war were produced by a program called the Manhattan Project. The atom bomb was, was born, the idea, the project was born in Manhattan. A lot of the initial research for the first year of the program happened in the Woolworth Building and again up at Columbia and even out, out at the Chiclet Factory in uh, Long Island City. Um, the, several of the principal scientists were uh, in New York at the time. Uh, they were either New Yorkers, like Richard Feynman, or they were European physicists who had fled Nazi Europe and come to New York City and were teaching at Columbia or elsewhere, like uh, Enrico Fermi. Um, and then the scientist who ran it all was an uh, Upper West Side native, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer. So there's all that. But then I think the the biggest deal about it and the most important impact that, that New York City had, um, not just during the war but in the build-up to the war, was the phenomenon that I call Gotham on the Potomac. Um, <clears throat> the 12 years that FDR was in the White House from the spring of 1933 to the spring of 1945, he attracted so many New Yorkers of so many types to Washington to work for him in so many capacities in the administration. That, um, that that's why I call it Gotham on mm-hmm. the Potomac. Um, and, and including some Republicans as the war approaches. That's right. Um, and and uh, uh, amongst the, um, the dollar a year men, as they were called, you can't, you know, because you're, you're prohibited from volunteering your services to the federal government, so they would pay them a symbolic dollar a year to, to do their work. Um, a lot of the CEOs of the, of the giant corporations, the, what would come to be known as the Fortune 500, Corporations. There were something like 135 of them in Manhattan, more than, obviously more than anywhere else in the country. Um, he had all them, uh, or a lot of them, working for him um, in the, the, the giant ramp-up of the defense industry, which you know, begins in 1940, and by 1941, the, the American defense industry is outproducing the entire axis. Um, so it was this huge and basically overnight buildup of the defense industry that was being engineered and run by uh, these guys who were CEOs of Manhattan-based corporations. But, uh, and they're like just a drop in the bucket. The, all his speechwriters, his major speechwriters, Sam Rosenman was a, a New, politician. York State, New York State politician um, who uh, came up with the, the term New Deal. So Sam's responsible for New Deal. Um, uh, Harry Hopkins who was running charities here in Manhattan. He, uh, the Cristadora on the Lower East Side was one of the, the charities he ran. Um, and then ran the first relief programs when the Depression hit, and, and Governor, then Governor Roosevelt, um, tapped Harry through Francis uh, Perkins, um, who instantly went down from here to Washington to be his Secretary of Labor, the first female cabinet member in history. Francis brings Harry down um, to help design the New Deal, all those New Deal programs that, that they cranked out 
in you know in the in the famous first like ten weeks of, of uh, his administration, um, Harry brought Fiorella LaGuardia down to to help him design it all. And LaGuardia had spent so much time going back and forth during those twelve years that the city of New York rented him an apartment in Washington so he'd have some place to stay. Sort of like De Blasio. So, oh, only not. Sort only of not. only not. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Is Mrs. De Blasio here? Anyway. Oh well. Well, and all. Mayor, and, nice to see you. And and um, and Hopkins um, comes up with the phrase "arsenal of democracy." Arsenal. He. It, it was not a new phrase. It had been used um, back in the Great War. Uh, he revived it, and and uh, and they got it in there. Uh, Harry. Sam Rosenman and um, Robert Sherwood, the playwright who wrote, um, um, I always want to call it Enchanted Forest, it's uh, Petrified Forest, Petrified Forest, um, who started out in the early 30s like an awful lot of Americans um, uh, espousing an isolationist and a pacifist and an anti-war um, philosophy. And then by 38, 39, watching what's going on in Europe, he comes around to the point of view that War is still bad, but when it comes to you and you have to fight it, then you have to fight it. Um, so he goes to work as well for, um, for Roosevelt, for Franklin. So uh, the three of them, three New Yorkers, are down in D.C. They're, they're basically living in the White House. Each one has his own bedroom in the White House. And they, a lot of those speeches that we know, that you know, the, the famous Roosevelt speeches, a lot of those speeches are those three guys mm-hmm. wrote them. And then he would take them and mess with them. And, and the, the Republicans that Roosevelt ran against during the war were also New Yorkers. Yeah. Uh, uh, Wendell Wilkie. When I was a kid, uh, if you almost succeeded at something, your dad would say, what do you want, a Wilkie button? (laughs) But he did, he ran a credible, Mm -hmm. it was a very interesting, the 1940 um, presidential elections uh, basically was the three New Yorkers were the main uh, figures. It was FDR, it was Wendell Wilkie, who was a a businessman here in New York, and, uh, and Tom Dewey, Thomas Dewey. Um, who uh, had been the front runner, the, the Republican front runner. Had been way up ahead. And um, I, part of the problem was is that the only other Republican was, uh, was Taft, who um, was so bland as to be practically invisible. Um, and these guys were much more colorful. Wilkie was a, a big, loud looking, his tie was always crooked, he was always kind of shouting. He was actually rather boring in what he was saying. But he said it in a very energetic way, and he was, he was very likable. Everybody who met him um, liked Wilkie. Um, Dewey was more of a robot. Uh, uh, he was not very personable. And, but to his credit, he would refuse to kiss babies or, or wear silly hats for the camera. He, he was very, very serious about it. Um, but he had become a celebrity as the Manhattan DA, putting mm-hmm. Lucky Luciano and some of the other um, uh, big mobsters in town. Uh, behind bars, and he used that that uh, national celebrity, um, gangbusters is is you know he was the gangbuster to start out with, so you had these three guys running against one another, all from New York, basically. So I we mentioned um, Lucky Luciano, and I wanna I wanna come back to people in New York who opposed the war effort yeah. for various reasons, but but since you dropped the Luciano name, yeah. let's let's talk about. The mob during the war. It, it's a, it's an interesting story. Um, uh, back up a little bit. The because New York Harbor is 
one of the very finest deep water harbors in the world. Um, it has always been busy and it's always been crowded with, with global shipping and local shipping and garbage scales and all that, which uh, the overcrowding um, created opportunities for hoodlums and gangsters to take over the waterfront and charge you to park your boat, charge you to unload your boat, charge the truck driver to put the stuff on his truck. Um, there was lots of extortion uh, uh, available to them. Um, and also, meanwhile, they're, they're paying off the cops and the, and the DA and, and the politicians to keep them quiet. Um, and that developed in the 19th century already. It was that crowded then. So by the time of the war, um, the, uh, the waterfront was run by gangsters. The um, west side, the Hudson River, was run by Irish gangsters. The East River on both sides was run by the Italian Mafia. And they were following the patterns of the workers. Most of the, most of the longshoremen on the Hudson Shore were Irish, and most of the longshoremen uh, on the East River were Italian. Um, so they just followed them there. Um, so when the war starts, there's great concern at the, um, uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence, at the FBI, at the Manhattan DA's office, about... Um, how vulnerable the waterfront is mm -hmm. to German saboteurs. You know, they're picturing U-boats sailing up the Hudson and, and, and blowing things up. Um, they're also worried about uh, uh, informers on the waterfront um, giving information to German spies uh, about the shipping that they're working on, what's going in, what's going out, because it was the most in, in busiest uh, seaport in the country at the time. And... It's run by the gangsters. So uh, uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence and the Manhattan DA's office come up with a, an idea that they call Operation Underworld. And it's to get the mafia and the Irish mobsters involved in protecting New York City uh, against those Nazis. Um, Appeal to their patriotism. Yes. And, and, it, and it worked to an extent. Uh, uh, the, it's an open question to this day exactly how helpful the uh, the gangsters were to the the war effort. Um, you know, they knew things like Luciano knew things about Sicily, and, and I, people say that you know, his information about Sicily was very important to um, our being able to, to um, invade and, and, and move up Sicily as we did. I think that's exaggerated, um, but they certainly did. Uh, they already enforced what was called on the, on the west side D&D, &D, which was deaf and dumb. If anybody you don't know asks you anything, you play D&D. &D. And they've been doing that for decades. So they were quite used to keeping their mouths shut. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. if you did say something to the wrong person, you were going to be in the river. Um, so they did maintain that. So there was very little. Um, uh, there was no sabotage was carried out uh, in, mm -hmm. in the city of New York. Um, and very little espionage by the Germans was, was successful once the war got started and you got those guys involved um, for, their, for their effort. It was who did really benefit from it was the wise guys themselves. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 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 Meyer Lansky and some of the other head guys in the mafia would go up to the prison where Lucky Luciano was because Tom Dewey had put him away for a 30 to 50 year sentence. So he's in prison. They go up to meet with him. They sit for a while and talk about how to defend the harbor. And then they lean their heads together and whisper their own business to one another the whole time. Mm -hmm. So they're conducting business while the O&I guys are, you know, sitting in the other end of the room. Um, and Luciano benefited because shortly after the war, um, Dewey is now governor. And he makes good on his 
offer and they let him, they let Luciano out of prison and then deport him back to Italy where he goes on doing business as usual and mm-hmm. very happily. Oh, so um, you, you mentioned Nazi spies and the threat mm-hmm. of Nazi spies. Um, so let's uh, either let's, let's stick with Nazi spies or, <laughs> or let's look at um, Nazi or fascist sympathizers. It, it's, they're sort of interrelated. Um, the Nazi spies did so well in New York up until the war when the clampdown came um, because there were so many, a distressingly high level of support, homegrown New York City, and Long Island and support for um, the Nazis and the fascists. And it was not just in the big German and Italian neighborhoods where you might expect to find it, but it was all over the place. There were Park Avenue blue bloods and in most of the Irish Catholic parishes um, and, and, and on Wall Street. Uh, there were businesses on Wall Street who played both ends against the middle and were as, were as important to Hitler's war effort as they were to the American war effort, um, which is a Dreadful story, I think. Um, so uh, uh, it's, it was no accident that the largest um, American Nazi uh, organization, the German-American Bund, had its headquarters in Yorkville, up on the Upper East Side, one of the largest German uh, neighborhoods outside of Germany, outside of the motherland. Oh, no, the fatherland, excuse me. Um, uh, and uh, Fritz Kuhn founded it. Fritz Kuhn... Uh, uh, had fought in World War I, uh, was a very early member of the Nazi party in Germany. Then he flees to America to get away from the economic and social chaos in Germany in, in the post-war years. Um, makes his way to Detroit, where he works for the phenomenally anti-Semitic psycho Henry Ford, um, uh, and then comes to New York. He had some other qualities. And he had a few, but he was definitely phenomenally uh, yes. uh, a psycho uh, anti-Semitic. Um, uh, and loved hiring guys like Fritz. Uh, Fritz becomes an American citizen um, while he's out there. Um, comes to New York, starts the Bund. Um, so um, by 1936, 37, you have fairly large groups of, of people wearing quasi-Nazi uniforms marching the street, you know, East 86th Street and, and uh, up in there, but also in German neighborhoods around Brooklyn and Queens. Uh, Ridgewood and Bushwick and other neighborhoods. And, out there. and, and Hitler is not uniformly enthusiastic about this. It, is he it? is worried about poking the sleeping giant. We are the, the United States is the sleeping giant. He does not want us to come in uh, at least until he has taken England as well as the rest of Europe. Uh, um, so he tells them to stop at one point. Um, I, I, he tells a group, there was a group called the Friends of New Germany who, who preceded Fritz, and he told them to cut it out because they were raising too much uh, uh, attention, <laughs> frankly. Um, then he tells Fritz and, 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 and the Bund to stop, but Fritz and the Bund are mostly American citizens, so they don't have to listen to him. So they, and Fritz is, Fritz is in no mood to stop. Fritz considers himself the American Fuhrer. He parks his family out in um, um, Jackson Heights, um, has a pied-à-terre here in Manhattan where he takes his girlfriends. Um, uh, you know, power, even if it's phony power, is an aphrodisiac. So he, had, he, had, he attracted a lot of people. One of them uh, was named Florence Camp. And uh, it, it, I guess it's inevitable somebody in the press decided to start calling her Mein Camp. <laughs> <laughs> 
What about what about Italian Americans in New York? Now, the same. I mean, in a way, well, but but also, uh, but different. Split, right? The the if you were um, a, if you were an immigrant and you had come here from Italy, you were pretty likely to be quite proud of Mussolini because he, you know, he did a you know through the twenties. Mussolini around the world had quite a different reputation than he has to us now. He was the man who kept the communists out of Italy. He uh, um, kept the unions from from ruining things, you know. He, and he got the trains running on time and, and all those those uh, all his accomplishments of the twenties. It's really some of Roosevelt's early New Dealers. Yeah, American. yeah. Um, and, and Wall Street was happy to invest in, in his programs in Italy. Um, it's really not until um, he invades Ethiopia, and when's that, 35, 1935, mm. that um, people begin to sour on him. Um, but to, if you're an older Italian, not an Italian-American, an Italian immigrant, you're, he's a source of pride to you. It, Italy as a country had only existed for, what, 50 years mm. by then. Um, so he's their first great leader. He's doing great things. They're very proud of him. Their kids, um, born here, they're, you know, New Yorkers, um, had a very different attitude about him as, and, and weren't so impressed with him. Um, and were very happy to sign up and, and go fight him or, or go work in the factory um, building bombs against him when the time came. So there was that split. Yeah. And we also had uh, communist spies here during the war. It, a nest of them. New York was a nest of spies. Um, it was amazing. All through be, be, the 30s. Because of so much that's happening here. It, because it's New York City. It's the biggest city in the world. It's, got, um, it's the center of international financing. It's the biggest shipping port in the world. It's got all the media here. It's got all those uh, corporations here. Um, so it's just paradise if you're... Um, if you're a German or, or a Soviet spy, um, to be here uh, and picking up also, and also Americans were very bad at counterintelligence. It had never really occurred to us that, you know, secrets are hard to keep and, and these, it just, we were not good at it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, the information that the various agencies, because uh, there were bunches of intel, the Army had theirs, the Navy had theirs, the Coast Guard probably had theirs, um, there was the FBI, uh, eventually there was the OSS, and they competed with one another as, as more often than they then they collaborated. Um, he used to say that uh, the information they fed him was the twilight zone. And oh, this is Ro- Roosevelt? Roosevelt, mm-hmm. yeah. And I wonder if Rod Serling got that idea. I don't, I, I, I don't know. And, and one um, of, uh, so, so, yeah, there's all sorts of Soviet spies and spy masters. And New York was um, a hotbed of... Uh, the Communist Party of America, you know, you had the, the American Nazi Party and the American Communist Party's headquarters were in Manhattan. Um, the Depression was a great time for the left in America because, you know, uh, through the 20s, uh, the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, the anarchists had, had all but died out because things were great. Everybody was rolling. There was a huge economic boom in the 20s. And Everybody's investing on the margin in Wall Street and becoming paper tycoons. The guy driving your cab is a millionaire now on paper um, uh, until the bill comes in. Um, And so the left just basically very close to vanished during the 1920s. Then comes the Depression. Everybody's hurting. Everybody's in a bad mood. Capitalism is not looking very good to a lot of people. And uh, 
the, the Communist Party membership shoots up something outrageous, like 500% in a, in a year. Um, and if you're a, a college kid, if you're, uh, an, like the, if you're an arty type in the West Village, and, um, you're leaning left anyway. You're at least a liberal, and now you've been radicalized by the Depression. So you're, if not a Communist Party member, which a lot of people were, you were a fellow traveler at the time. And one of these um, radicalized uh, men uh, becomes a spy and then works for Time magazine, Whitaker Chambers. Whitaker Chambers is here. Uh, just an amazing character. Um, starts out, uh, he's, in high school, his, his fellow students called him Stinky. Uh, he was this kind of lugubrious, odd fellow with terrible teeth. Um, that he refused to get fixed because he thought that that was the proletarian thing to do, to have bad teeth. Um, very bright, but very scattered. Um, joins the Communist Party early, in the 20s, actually. Um, becomes a courier, and so he's running uh, secret messages back and forth uh, between a safe house in Greenwich Village and other spots around the city. The, the <coughs> Moscow eventually sends him to Washington, where he's running spies in Washington, including Alger Hiss, another on-again, off-again New Yorker, um, who, you know, was way up in the State Department in his time and was feeding him very important secrets. Um, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, we all know, um, they come from... The Lower East Side was especially a hotbed of um, pro... So, because, you know, it was... It was very Jewish. It was very Eastern European and Russian Jewish. They had fled the Tsar, the Tsarist Russia, so, and, and many of them had, in fact, been involved in some of the various revolutions that mm -hmm. led up to the 1917 revolution. So they, were all, they came with a, a disposition toward communism when they got here. Um, so the Rosenbergs are, are an example. Then the Rosen, and, uh, um, ran, the Rosenbergs ran... Um, well, Julius did at any rate. Um, a, a ring of other guys who were all, they were um, uh, all New York natives. Um, the people who did... Who went out to Los Alamos. I was going to say, the folk, you know, the Manhattan Project was invented here and the spies who <laughs> stole all of the Manhattan Project secrets, except for Klaus Fuchs, who came from Germany, but um, the, uh, David Greenglass, who was with the Rosenbergs, um, he was uh, Ethel's brother. Um, Ted Hall, who is not as well known, um, but Ted um, managed not to be caught. So until the well, he sort of yeah, he never was, and and his deathbed, he does a deathbed confession in the mid nineties, ninety six, I think. That's a little vague. So, but they they know that because um, when the Soviet Union breaks up, then all the secret files become public in the in the mid nineties. The the flood of information and. A lot of names start turning up that, that nobody had known until 96, mm -hmm. 90, and Ted Hall is one of them. Um, he was the youngest, the second youngest scientist at Los Alamos. He was 18. He, the, the Harvard sent him his graduation stuff Out there. At, at Los Alamos. <laughs> uh -huh. Sorry you can't uh, come to Cambridge to, yeah. to take it, so yeah. we'll send it to you. Uh, um, one, one of the most <coughs> moving uh, moments in, in your book, and this is kind of telling his story backwards, but it's, it's when uh, Joe Lewis appears uh, at a rally for the war effort. Yeah. But, but let's, let's take him and bring him up to that uh, moment. You know, the, one of the great moments is uh, in, in the 
the Depression era is Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling at Yankee Stadium. Um, what's that, 38? Yeah, 38. Uh, the whole world is listening. It's, it's the most... Um, the audience is the biggest audience for any event ever in the history of the world up until that moment. Um, all around the world, they're listening on radio. Um, it's over in like two minutes and 15 seconds. Um, it was over so quick that some people were still finally into the stadium and everybody else was heading This out. was the rematch. Yes, the, the, their second fight. Max, Max had beat Joe uh, originally in, I guess, 36. Um, and uh, the, the jubilation in, in Yorktown, because Schmeling was German, um, was they were out on 86th Street, you know, and, and partying the whole. And Harlem, the gloom in Harlem was such that um, this, this might be apocryphal, but it was said that some people had heart attacks and died listening to that fight on the radio mm -hmm. that night. Um, they were so upset. Um, so he gets the rematch. Uh, it's at Yankee Stadium this time, so it's packed. Pack mob, and everybody is there. Uh, uh, Babe Ruth is there, and, and just an incredible um, crowd of folks. And Joe is ready, and it's time because now it's 1938, and, and you know, and he's and Hitler's annexing Austria, and, and all this other stuff. And so, I mean, is he following that? Or everybody was, yeah, yeah. Uh, even Joe, yes. Um, I mean, even sports figures were paying attention to it at the time. Um, it, the world knew that the world was on the brink of something, mm -hmm. I believe. Um, and if, if you didn't know it, you were under a very big rock somewhere mm -hmm. out in the middle mm -hmm. of the desert. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he knew that the fight was, uh, you know, it was, it was good against evil. I think he knew that it was us against them. Um, so, sort of rocky, but decades but, ahead of time. Ahead of rocky, yeah. And, and um, I wonder if they, you know, that's a good question. If they base that, what's that, Rocky Four or whatever, where he goes up against... Uh, uh, Ivan Drago. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's possible. Uh, but and, and just demolishes Schmeling. You, if you see the footage, it's amazing, because Schmeling is in his corner, and Joe comes leaping out of his, and Schmeling gets this look, and his fist just sort of fun. He's like, oh, man. <laughs> He looks like he wants to be anywhere else on the planet than mm -hmm. in that ring with him in the I'm, middle of Yankee Stadium. Soon he Stadium. was. He was out. Uh, in no time flat, he was mm -hmm. down and just knocked him down, knocked him down, knocked him down, and then the referee was like, "All right, that's enough of that." So, so when does uh, Lewis enlist? Uh, right away, um, uh -huh. by like January, or February of 1942, he enlists. Um, they send him uh, out to Yaphank, um, out on Long Island, which was where they sent um, uh, entertainers and, and uh, sports figures and stuff that they were thinking they were going to keep away from the front. Um, Army brass, military brass, um, quite intelligently, I think, thought, all right, um, we can have Joe Lewis in uniform, we can have him get killed in a foxhole, or we can have him doing um, uh, morale and, and, and uh, for other servicemen in uniform. So they, they went that way. Uh, and with a lot of them, they did that. There was a whole unit in Manhattan called Special Services that was made up of songwriters and, and composers and illustrators um, who were in uniform, but they never did KP. They never carried a rifle. They, they were doing special services. Um, Joe's was sort of like that. Um, he was in a segregated unit, of course, because they all were at the time. Um, 
and didn't gripe about that and didn't say a thing about it. Other, other people in segregated units, actually, um, there were uprisings on, on some military basis because they were treated so poorly. Um, but you're not going to treat Joe Lewis poorly. You're going to treat him as, like a celebrity. And um, whenever they needed uh, somebody to come give a talk, you know, they, and they would have you know, FDR, and they would have Eleanor, and they would have uh, uh, Tom Dewey and, and Fiorello. And then Joe Lewis would get up there and very quietly and very humbly say, you know, I- I'm doing this because we all got to do this because this is the right and God is on our side. And people just adored him for it. Mm-hmm. And sincerely, it sounds like. From I think. Oh, I absolutely think so. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Tell us about uh, uh, Roosevelt's great um, day-long campaign in his forty-four race. It's his last uh, campaign hurrah uh, in man. the city. By nineteen forty-four, he's alarmingly. The 1944 campaign, where he's running now for the fourth term. The, the, when he ran for the third term in, in 1940, um, a lot of people were appalled. It had not been done before. Um, his supporters, were, his enemies called his supporters third termites um, <laughs> and, and opposed him on it. Um, so he wins then. Now it's 1944. He looks terrible. He's, his mind is going. He's, he's very ill. Uh, Eleanor begs him not to run. A lot of the people around, Robert Sherwood and some of the other people around him are like, he's not going to survive just running. Um, but he did, uh, and uh, not for very long after, but he did you know, survive that. And uh, everybody was noticing it. The press, who had, who had um, not covered up for him, but, but downplayed his, his physical appearance all through the war, we're beginning to to openly question whether he was in enough health to run again. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Dewey was running against him again, and Dewey used that his youth and his vitality and, and et cetera. Sort of cetera. a tacit uh, reference. Exactly. Um, so they uh, arranged for FDR to come to New York City and spend a day on a terrible day. It's cold, it's rainy. Um, it's, it's, I guess it's uh, October. Yeah, it's in October. Um, they start out in Brooklyn. They do the Brooklyn Navy Yard. They do the Brooklyn Army Terminal. Um, they stop to get him some warm clothes and a shot because uh, he was a he was a drinking man. Um, and warmed him up. They uh, they kind of avoided. They did Queens, but they kind of just skipped through Queens because Queens was uh, a Dewey territory. Mm-hmm. He was very popular in Queens. Uh, in the Bronx, the the huge crowds turned out, and there was the ticker tape falling in the rain and all that. And then they so they make the circuit. They don't do Staten Island, um, but they make a circuit from Brooklyn up through Queens, down through the Bronx, down Manhattan. Uh, to Greenwich Village, where Eleanor had a flat. Eleanor always had a, uh, a place somewhere in Manhattan her entire life. Um, and they stopped there for a while, and then he had a speech to make that night, uh, I think at the Waldorf Astoria. Um, so he's in this open car, on the road, in the rain, all day in, in New York City. And with no coat. I mean, I've seen he had that, pic- that blue, that, for a while he was wearing that blue right. cape that he had and that weird crushed yeah, hat. Yeah, but I've seen like. pictures of him yeah, with no, the cape he, yeah, uh, open. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Probably helped uh, shorten his life. I think it did. I, I, I'm not sure that was a great idea. Well, yeah, but, you know, it was, it was what he had to do to, you know, to make the last 
run down the home stretch. They, they, they com- he convinced himself and they convinced him that he had to appear to be able to take that mm-hmm. sort of grueling day. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. I don't know that. One thing, one thing I just love about this book is the, the cast of thousands <laughs> aspect yeah. of it. Well, it's and, New York City. Well, it's New York, right. But, uh, so tell us, one of my favorite characters, tell us about Grover Whalen. Oh, Grover. One of the f- most interesting and fun things about doing a book like this is that you get to resuscitate the, the, the image of some of these folks, and there are a lot of them, who were quite big deals in the day, quite well-known, at least as well-known as the ones we know now. But history writing has that process of pushing a lot of people into the background, and then there's only you know so many people in the foreground. We all know that sailor bending that poor girl in half in Times Square. Um, <laughs> but we don't know Grover Whalen, but he was a huge deal. They called him Mr. New York. Um, born on the Lower East Side, uh, Irish. His dad was a solid Tammany Democrat, so he named him for Grover Cleveland. Um, so he grows up in, in the Tammany tradition, um, becomes a businessman for a while, and then again later. But um, uh, for the Tammany mayor uh, at the end of World War I, it was Mayor Highland. Um, He's, he's working for him in some capacity, and he's such a gregarious guy. He looks like a matinee idol. He had one of those pencil mustaches. He looked like he was born in a top hat and tails. He wore them beautifully. Um, so he, he's kind of the, the avatar of the New York toff mm-hmm. um, with, with a nice, pleasant Irish lilt in his voice on, to, on top of that. Um, the Mayor Highland says, you be the master of ceremonies at, uh, for the big events. I, I'm just not up for it. I'm, uh, I'm too shy. So he organizes and, and presides over um, the year, that, the orgy of, of parades and celebrations that went on when, everybody, when the Doughboys all came back after the Great War. Then he does what was, till then, the largest parade in New York's history, the Lindbergh Parade. Um, they, it said that if he did not invent the use of ticker tape, he perfected it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just uh, millions of tons of ticker tape falling on Lindbergh. He continues to do that. He's, he's the Toastmaster General. So, so he cycles through many mirrors. It, they all just keep him around doing that. Um, there's a darker side to him. Uh, uh, Jimmy Walker, Mayor Jimmy Walker, um, another Tammany man, uh, appoints him um, uh, police commissioner. Um, and as a Tammany Democrat and, and, and an Irishman, uh, uh, Grover Whalen is anti-communist, anti-red, down to his toenail. Uh, 1930, right after the crash, um, the Communist Party has, organizes what they thought would be a couple thousand people showing up in Union Square, um, an unemployment rally. Because the unemployment figure, already by February, the unemployment mm-hmm. was extraordinary in the city. Um, 35,000 people show up. Uh, Whalen is extremely alarmed, and he rings the whole of Union Square with mounted and foot patrolmen, um, just waiting for something to happen. Um, Some of the organizers decide that they want to march down to City Hall and and see if Jimmy Walker is there. Uh, Who wouldn't be? Jimmy would have been in a speakeasy somewhere, but uh, they were going to go down looking for him. Yeah. and they don't have a permit. And Whalen uses that as the excuse to unleash hell. And they, the, like, 
some thousands of cops go flying into this crowd with, with the nightsticks, and there's a lot of blood and guts um, that day. Um, it's so bad that he gets removed as, as mm-hmm. commissioner. But he did have that weird hard side. Um, so, okay, so it, now it's about 1936, 1936. He's the chairman of Shenley, the liquor company. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and some other businessmen and political operatives in New York City decide it would be a great thing to have a World's Fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and he becomes uh, Mr. World's Fair. Um, and people at the time used to call it Mr. Whalen's World's Fair. He um, travels around the world. Uh, he meets Mussolini and gets him involved. He gets Mussolini so excited that Mussolini was going to have his own World's Fair, but the war happened and he didn't have a chance. Um, he doesn't meet with Hitler, but he meets with his, his people, and, and Germany signs on. 60 nations around the world sign on. Um, so he's he, not just a figurehead. He's really he uh, he really is doing happen. the work. He gets Howard Hughes to name one of his planes the you know the New York's World's Fair, and he flies it around the world as a publicity stunt. He gets yeah. now we have to go to questions, but I I want you to tell about the Salvador Dali exhibit at the World's <laughs> Fair. So the 1939 World's Fair, um, uh, you know we remember it for the Paris Fair and the Trilon and and the City of the Future. Um, but at the time, it w- at least as popular was the entertainment side, which was kind of, you know, partly a circus midway and kind of partly a burlesque, outdoor burlesque show. There were burlesque shows. There were um, nudist ranches where girls were walking around, to- not naked but topless. There were little people shows. There was, it was fairly low-class entertainment going on at the World's <laughs> Fair. Um, but the classiest one, and, and it's, it's just amazing, is, is uh, Salvador Dali designed one with naked women swimming around in, 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 it's either called the Venus Pavilion or the Neptune Pavilion, I think, I think Venus. And they're swimming Venus, around, really. uh, and, and uh, one of the guys in the press called it 20,000 Legs Under the Sea. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to questions here. Uh, let's see. What physical remnants, uh, buildings, for example, are left from this period? Oh, there's lots. There's tons, um, obviously. Um, the Empire State Building's still there. Um, the, uh, uh, the only building left from the 39 World's Fair, the, the New York City Pavilion, is still there, and it's now the Queen's Museum. It was where, um, when the UN was trying to decide if they were going to come here, they met temporarily in, out at... Out at um, in, the New York City Pavilion, which had been converted into an ice rink after, after the war, I mean after the, the fair, and then was reconverted into a very handsome um, meeting hall uh, for the General Assembly bef- before they decided to, to build in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the UN the, is from sort of that period. They laid the, the cornerstone in 1949. Um, most of downtown is same. New York, uh, the, the point, one of the points about New York City is that um, it, of all the great cities in the world, it was pretty much the only one that came out of the war intact and pristine. Mm-hmm. It was never bombed. It was never uh, attacked in any way, except for the U-boats out um, off Coney Island, but um, the city itself. Right. So there's lots left. Right, we haven't been burned since the revolution. Right. Um, were, so kick the Brits off. Were Evacuation any, day. Were any particular neighborhoods especially changed during the war? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't 
think so. I think most of them, if anything, they were more intensely what they had been. Uh, Yorkville was more intensely Germantown. People called it Germantown and Klein Deutschland. Um, uh, Little Italy was more intensely Little Italy uh, during the period. Uh, I, I think that's an example when you talk about the young Italian-Americans, New, New York-born Italian-Americans, they were changed by the war. They got out of the house. They got out of the neighborhood. Many of them never came back. Um, but the big changes uh, in the neighborhoods kind of don't start until after the war. Um, the housing crisis, there was a massive housing mm -hmm. crisis, and that helped stimulate um, the Levittown and, and the, the, the suburbs. So, and so now a, people are moving out. There was a riot in Harlem, though, during the war, yes? The, yes. Um, uh, through the Depression, uh, of course, uh, as bad as the Depression was everywhere else in New York City, it was worse in Harlem, of course. Um, the, the unemployment rate was something extraordinary. It was like 50%. Um, meanwhile, their rents keep going up because the, their landlords keep gouging them. Um, so the, there are a lot of grievances building up in Harlem and in other black, in Brownsville and other black neighborhoods, uh, and in other cities with large black, Detroit and elsewhere, Chicago. Um, the war comes. Um, a lot of the men are, are going, getting put into uniform. Um, uh, they almost, uh, almost uniformly, uh, report that they are treated worse in the military than they were in civilian life. Um, so they're not happy, they're not happy. Um, they're fighting repression uh, 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 you know, overseas, but they're being repressed at home still. So in the summer of 43, some, there were um, uprisings on some army bases, black soldiers uprising against their, their white officers who had been mistreating them for a long time by then. There's a very large riot in uh, Detroit. Um, New York braces for it, and it comes in Harlem in August of 1943. And um, uh, it's just a, you know, a chaotic war scene all night long, finally calms down by the next morning. Um, uh, LaGuardia and, and J. Edgar Hoover and, and pretty much all the authorities blame it on uh, you know, communist infiltrators and outside hooligans and zoot-suited hooligans. But... When you look at the, uh, the record of who was arrested, it's a cross-section of Harlem society. Mm -hmm. So it was the entire community had just had enough. Mm -hmm. Was there a uh, Japanese-American presence in New York City? Not much. I think there were m maybe 10,000 Japanese-Americans in, in the G greater New York area. I think it's 10,000. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a small presence. Um, the, on December 7th, um, the instant the Pearl Harbor news comes, um, LaGuardia has them all. He puts them all in a house arrest, basically. Closes down. The, there's a Japanese uh, information bureau. There are some Japanese restaurants. They all get closed down over the next day or two. And um, the, um, the immigrant, the, not, not New York-born Jap York Japanese, but, but their parents, their immigrant parents, um, are rounded up that week, that first week um, after um, December 7th. Um, they're taken down to Foley Square where the FBI interviews them. They're taken to Ellis Island. And then from Ellis Island, they eventually make it, uh, are taken to detention camps. And many of them are held through the war. Hmm. So there was a small Japanese community, and it was much smaller very quickly. Uh -huh. uh, how did the war affect tourism here? Places, attractions like Broadway. 
Uh, well, uh, uh, the war was actually really good for, for Broadway, for Times Square. Um, the Depression had basically shut down professional theater <laughs> in New York City, along with everything else. Restaurants, professional theater, uh, nightclubs. Um, Times Square was pretty much the only place that was still up and all the lights and the, and the camel man was smoking his camel and all that uh, through the Depression. But even there, Times Square got seedier and, and became more the Times Square that some of us remember from the, you know, the 1970s and 60s. Um, it was heading in that direction instead of the, the 1920s Times Square where a guy in a top hat and a, you know, the woman in the ermines are stepping out of their limousine. Um, now it's uh, uh, street hookers of all varieties and, and, and pickpockets and, and stuff. Um, but it's still brightly lit up. And then even the lights have to go up for the dim out uh, in 1942. Um, but uh, millions and millions of soldiers and sailors and guys in uniform are passing through um, New York City either on their way out, the, you know, those three million guys who, who went out through, the, or um, lots of uh, British and Dutch and French and everybody else are coming in and being sent somewhere. So Times Square is busy and crowded and, and bustling through the war. Uh, Broadway has a big revival. Um, uh, you know, uh, um, Oklahoma and all those other, like those, those classic musicals run through the war um, that, that couldn't have found a house to play in just a couple of years earlier. So, um, and, and the restaurants were all open and, 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 uh, and full of people. So in those terms, if, if that's all considered tourism, then it was, New York did very well. So the lights go off, but business booms. Yeah. Business Ed Murrow came back from London, after, which had been, he had been in London as it was bombed every night and every night through the fall of that year. Um, and he came back, and it, it really angered him that New York was doing so well. It just seemed so complacent to him. Hmm. Uh, how did New Yorkers who weren't in the military contribute to the war? Oh, in lots of ways. Um, in, in the first place, there's uh, because of the, the 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 amazingly quick ramping up of the defense industry at the same time that you're siphoning off all these workers and putting them in uniform. Um, there was a, a, a tremendous uh, job opportunities for everybody. Um, for women, women go to work in, in, a, in extraordinary numbers, and, and they're doing jobs that they were never allowed to do before. They're not just behind shop counters. They're driving buses. They're driving cabs. They're working in scientific labs. Um, they're building airplanes. They're, there's 4,000, more than 4,000 women working suddenly at, uh, the, at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, where there had been 100 before that, and the 100 had been stitching flags and, mm. and, and doing woman's work. Now they're, they're doing everything. Um, so uh, there's lots of people doing defense work in New York. Not at first, because New York was not naturally uh, conducive to, you know, we didn't have big steel plants, we didn't have big airplane factories. We had a lot. New York was, in fact, the biggest factory town in the world, but it was all the, it was garment industry and, and food so little, services. Little factory. 20 employees mm -hmm. at Tops, mm -hmm. I think, was, or 20 employees on average, which is, you know, quite small. Um, so the, they had to gear up, and LaGuardia had to spend a lot of time in Washington begging for, for defense contracts. Um, even the garment industry was not building uniforms, was not making uniforms at first. They were being, that, those contracts were going elsewhere. But eventually, um, there's, so there's a lot of people in New York doing that work. Um, 
there's a, a, a 400,000, I think is the number, victory gardens all over the city. Um, people are doing victory gardens on the roof and on the uh, fire escape and in the backyard and uh, at Macy's. And, and, uh, and, and they grew millions of tons of vegetables for themselves, and that's, that's helping the war effort. Um, people collected bacon grease and, and brought it to bacon grease centers because it's used, um, the, the glycerin in it was used in making explosives. So they did tons. Can I tell a story? Yes, of Here course. Story. This is uh, my, my first managing editor, Priscilla Buckley. Uh, her first job was a, a war-related opportunity for women. and This was at United Press. And she did radio scripts for United Press in the old Daily News building. And the thing she learned from that experience, which I have never forgotten, they were told, if you're reporting, say, on a bombing mission, and one bomber, American bomber, was shot down. Uh-huh. You never say only one bomber uh-huh. because the people in that bomber perished and they have uh-huh. relatives and family. So, and I have never forgotten That's this. Really, Whenever yeah. there's a disaster or a catastrophe or loss of life and, and people are you, you know, don't say only. You, no, yeah. you never say. You never say. You just, you just give the number. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did the influx of refugees into New York City, this is... I think would be um, pre-war fleeing, fleeing Europe, yeah. have an effect on arts and culture? Oh, a tremendous impact. Um, the Nazis, uh, as they're coming into power after 1933, um, uh, are not just persecuting, uh, they're persecuting scientists, so all the great scientific minds are, who can get out do get out, and they come across the ocean and end up in New York City, and a bunch of them stay in New York City. Um, and they go on the faculty of Columbia or the New School. But it's also the same with the arts and with culture and with intellectualism in general. The Nazis were, you know, not an intellectual bunch. Um, they were anti-intellectual. So, uh, so it's not just Jews, the, the enemy, the racial yeah. enemy, but, but people of culture more. People of culture probably. because, you know, we're anti-culture. Uh, art because we're anti-art. You know, they, their idea of art you know, um, was bust of Wagner Hitler. plus Cage. Yeah, yeah, they had terrible taste, uh, along with everything else. Ex- you know, except maybe in uniforms. People like their uniforms, but otherwise, I'm not a fashion person, so I don't know. Um, so the the cream of um, European science and philosophy and art and music, court vile and et cetera, et cetera, uh, uh, all come. All flee Europe, um, uh, and many of them, well, for, they all come to New York to start with because it was the port of entry, but then many of them stay. And they have an enormous impact on, uh, on New York artists. Um, they're, the, they're seeing the modern art world has transferred to Manhattan. Oh, we used to have to go to Europe, and then yeah, now you used Europe to go to has, Paris. has uh, come here. You can't go to Paris now, you know, right, right. so um, Paris has come to you. Um, so by the, the late 40s and 50s, when uh, uh, um, New York artists are, are creating abstract expressionism, a term that was, that was coined here by a guy who wrote for The New Yorker, um, and, and, and a true, the first truly American modern art, it's because of the influence of all those Europeans who had come over. They had a huge impact on and you know, and so, and then for the next twenty-five years, New York City is the art and culture and intellectual capital of the world. Here's a great wrap-up question: 
What surprised you most in writing this book? Oh, that is... Um, I guess it would be the, the, the extent of sympathy for Nazism and fascism among homegrown New Yorkers, native New Yorkers. Uh, you know, it was a minority position, but it was pervasive. It was all over the city in all different communities and neighborhoods and types of people from, as I said, from like, uh, you know, Park Avenue Tofts down to poor Irish Catholic neighborhoods out in Brooklyn. Um, and the fact that Fritz Kuhn could pack Madison Square Garden, the one that was then on 8th Avenue um, and 49th Street, with 22,000 people. And we've, most of us have seen, the, actually the footage has been making the rounds again, uh, the, the, his February 1939 rally. 22,000 people, we don't know that they were all New Yorkers, of course, but let's assume that most of them were. Sieg Heiling and, and uh, I mean Sieg Heiling. Um, there was a, uh, okay, but I'll end on a lighter note. There was a great line in the Tribune um, uh, about a rally that he had in York, Yorktown, uh, Yorkville, um, uh, where there were tens of thousands of people, several people deep, lining the streets, watching them go by. And the Tribune said, uh, so some of the observers did this, and some of the observers did that, so you know they were they were communists or leftists. And some of the observers did this. <laughs> and I said, okay. okay, that's a good mix. Right? Okay, that's great. Well, thank you, John, so much. Thank you, guys, very very much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.